and welcome to Building Futures, career conversations with leading lights across the built environment. Today, I have Kerry Evans, who is Regional Manager of Contracts and Procurement for Bechtel. She's a keynote speaker and a keen advocate for diversity and inclusion across the built environment. Hello, Kerry. Hello, Gail. Thanks for having me. No problem. So we met each other at Construction Week. And bonded. And bonded. And we were both on a panel about DNI. So when I say to people, this person's passionate about DNI, with you, I've seen it. Because I was actually with you on a panel as we were answering questions, which we didn't know. That, you know, we were literally just being asked by the audience. And I know your journey, but I also know that you really believe in this and that you, this is a real passion of yours. So I want to come back to this. But let's start because people who don't know your bio like I do, let's just talk about, let's talk about you. So tell me first of all about your current role and then we'll kind of circle back and talk about your journey. So my current role, I've been at Bechtel on and off, you know, like a, like a boyfriend that, that kind of, you know, you never quite get over. Um, joined initially in 2005, came back in 2021 um, as a head of business development for our rail division. Um, and currently I'm leading contracts and procurement across EAMS, UK and I for our whole infrastructure division. So that's everything from uh, nuclear, railways, aviation, um, to renewable energy, heavy civils, dams, motorways, um, from Saudi Arabia to the Balkans um, and across the UK as well. So, yeah, quite a big remit. And I would say um, my responsibility is really people, prospects, projects and process. So in Bexel, it's quite unusual functionally. Um, the people are mine. So I have responsibility for where they are, their careers. Um, the projects don't own them, so they're kind of on loan for a period of time. But, you know, once they finish those projects, it's down to me to work out, you know, where do they go next? What's, what's best for their career? What's the best fit? So there's lots of kind of people-centric part and, and recruitment-centric part of the role as well. Absolutely. And I was lucky enough to watch you interacting actually with one of your more junior colleagues at the construction week absolutely absolutely and saw that real nurturing kind empathetic leadership style that you have and that was just something I was able to observe because we were together for pretty much a full day and watching how you do that can we just go back to your own career before we talk about your leadership style? So can you tell me, were you always in construction? Is this something that is, has been throughout your career or not? So I'm somewhat of, of an, an anomaly, I think, in our industry. So I'm actually um, a singer by profession or by background. So um, from the age of nine, I kind of sang for, for kind of big choirs. I'm from the South Wales Valleys. Um, was a soloist from an early age, ended up being soloist for the Welsh Youth Choir and, and soloist for Prince Charles at 17. Um, yes, so a, a big gig in Cardiff St David's Hall. So ended up doing a music degree um, at one of the conservatoires, graduated with, with a degree in classical singing and piano. 
um, and then moved into the music industry. So I worked for the contemporary music side of London College of Music, where actually that's probably where I found out I was quite good at commercial and sales. Um, because I was responsible for running the courses there, but obviously there, there was a huge people-centric part of that as well, looking after 200 students every six months, um, and worked my, my way through the music industry to a job at Classic FM, where I was wow. office manager there. Um, and Classic FM were bought out by Capital Radio, so at that point, um, they needed to make most of the staff redundant. I was one of them, and literally, very randomly found a job ad in The Guardian for a PA role at the Institution of Civil Engineers. So became PA to various presidents, um, lots of kind of names that are very well known in the industry, Doug Ogilvy, Colin Clinton, who was the youngest ever president, um, Jean Venables was there, John Berland, Quentin Leeper, Gordon Masterton, so massive names. And it kind of sparked a passion in me that I didn't really realise I had. Um, after three years, I realised, you know, I wanted more or wanted growth, um, and then applied for a job as a, a PA to one of the partners at Bechtel. Um, knew nothing about Bechtel at the time, and of course, Bechtel are the largest privately owned construction company in the United States. Um, and this, this man, Tom McCarthy, who was one of their SVPs, really, really brilliant leader, um, saw something in me. So within six months, kind of said, well, I think you can do more than be a PA, um, and gave me a shot at managing the baseline from, for, for the prime contract of a 9.8 billion job. So that was my first job in wow. contracts. Okay, here we go. Let's, yes. let's get thrown in the deep end. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. absolutely. And uh, I, I didn't mess it up, Yes, <laughs> which was brilliant. Yeah. Um, at the same time, we had a, a huge overrun on one of our stations, so rugby station, and, and in, in sort of operational rail environments like network rail, any overrun um, is a big deal, particularly yes. if it's over Christmas, it has to be replanned, it can take two years at a time. So I then became part of the team in rugby that helped to kind of pull that back on track, and I was given my own contracts to run for the first time, so I did that for a year. Um, must have done a good enough job because the client then asked if I could be moved onto the Reading station area redevelopment. Um, and within three months of that, I was promoted to the senior commercial manager role um, and was given Reading Depot cradle to grave to run from a contracts and procurement perspective. So that was a two, close to 200 million job within a, a 1.1 billion baseline. Um, it was on the critical path of Reading, so super important, yeah. and subsequently has become very, very important in the route into Crossrail as Absolutely, well. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So there was a huge bottleneck outside of London, which was, was Reading, so we needed to separate the grades so the freight trains and the passenger trains you know, could travel They're at different right. speeds. Yeah, of course, yeah. um, so that, that project was one of you, I guess, in the UK, we delivered it seven months early, 33 million under budget. Wow, under budget and early. Yes. Tick, tick, okay. gold star. Yes, on Amazing. top of that, um, we were nominated for four British Construction Industry Awards, including the Prime Minister's Award. Um, and we, we also won the Health and Safety Award in 2014 for the BCIA. So that was super. And then the first major collaboration certification in the rail industry went to our team as well. So that, that kind of was 
I suppose, a, a period of five years. I'd gone from being a PA yes. to running this huge job. Um, so it just goes to show, I guess, that you can reinvent at any point in your career as long as you've got the right support, the right people around you and, and the right focus. I was going to say, because I hear this a lot, that people say I had the right support and also I was lucky. But it, I almost want to go, I'm sure it's not just luck. I'm sure there's an element of good, right place, right time. But I also, I've observed the way that you lead because I saw the way that you were interacting with your colleagues at, um, at Construction Week. And I would say I think it's a bit more than that. I think you're being very modest. What is it, do you think, that has meant that you've become so successful in something that you didn't start out thinking this would be a career and yet you, you know, you're right at the top of your game? What, what is it? Is it something you've deliberately done? in terms of the way that you've chosen to interact with clients or to lead? Or is it just a style that's kind of grown with you? I think that's a, a brilliant question. Um, some of it starts, obviously, with having the right mentors and advocates yeah. around you. So I think mentorship, advocacy and sponsorship is super important. <clears throat> so when I'm managing or leading teams now, I always say, look for someone you aspire to be. You know, what does their pathway look like? And how do you follow that pathway? Um, and I think also that there's there's sort of the the technical discipline side, and then there's the personal development side. And I think it's very important to be cognizant of both of those things in how you then plan. Um, and you know, I'm sure you've read. I'm, I'm reading it more and more now. People who have a plan or a goal, yeah. they will get to where they want to be and achieve something. So I always talk about the fact that my brain is very arty on one side and scientific on the other. And certainly at that point in time, I was surrounded by some exceptional technical brains. Um, and I was introduced to the idea of having a development plan. Now, for me, it was very important or became very important for me to get a career. I had this kind of vision of, you know, the home I wanted, the life I wanted. Um, I very much wanted to travel. So, you know, in, in my, my spare time between projects, I've climbed most of the world's major mountain ranges. Um, I've sailed in, in, you know, some amazing, amazing places. And for me, I wanted to be able to kind of carve out some time to do yeah. that and be able to afford it. So again, there was some motivation there. So I put together a development plan that basically took, you know, my aspirations and dreams and goals personally, and then my aspirations as far as a career, and I kind of laid them together on, on a pathway so that, you know, step one, I need to, to get chartered. So while yeah. I was running Reading Depot, um, I was able to get chartered within six months of completing that job. So again, I'd gone from being a PA yeah. to five years later, having, you know, a master's in quantity surveying and chartering Incredible. all at the same time. And um, I'm often asked, you know, how did you do that? How did you run a massive job and do a part time? Well, not even part time, you know, a personal time yeah. MSc and yeah. get chartered. Um, and again, I, I like to pair it back to what's important to you. Um, and, you know, I think we'll talk about this later. I talk a lot about red lines. What are your red lines? Yeah. Where does work stop and then something important to you start? So yeah. for me at that point, it was having the ability to, 
to kind of do recreational walking and have at least, you know, a couple of weekends a month to myself. So I was very disciplined about, you know, two weekends of mine and I will study and I will do my 10,000 word assignments. And then, you know, two weekends are for me to do whatever I I want to do. And then I devoted the whole work week and sometimes it was 12 hour days. Yeah. Sometimes it was longer than that, but I loved it. Yes. Um, and I was able to completely focus on the job and, and the delivery. Um, also, I think it's important to be quite introspective. Yeah. Um, some people don't realise that they've got blockers yeah. and motivators and they don't really know what those things are. So, you know, we've talked about what my motivators are, mm. but everyone's got what I like to call a core story. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not worthy, I'm not likeable, I'm not lovable, I'm not clever. And it can sometimes almost push you towards doing things that, that don't make your heart sing. And I think we all know that the people that are best at things are doing things they love. So again, I did spend some time doing personal development and, and looking into, okay, what, what matters the most to me? I certainly had a fear of failure pre-doing that master's. And in doing that master's, I think I conquered it. And, mm. and, and, and I did really, really well. Um, so it, it's that phrase, isn't it? Get out of your own way. Which yes. And, and, and just trying. Yes. I think often, yeah. like you said, we, we feel stuck and we want to do something about it. And then we are then scared of doing the very thing that we know will get us out of it. Because I think, as you said, there's that art and there's that science, there's the dreamer and then there's the realist. And I think we're always all walking that tightrope of, in our careers of what is a good, um, a good challenge to myself that isn't either reckless. Yes. And I think it's often, and I see that in people, and I love the fact that you have walked that tightrope I also love just sort of coming back to sort of like a real how, because you, uh, which is really useful. I actually think people listening find that really useful is that, okay, this is how I did it. I loved also that you planned rest time. I don't think we talk about that enough. I agree. That, that, that actually how important, if you were an athlete, you know, we hear about this a lot with, you know, professional athletes, Absolutely. planned rest time and not actually over-exercising or over, it, actually we don't talk about that enough in the workspace. Because there was, there was quite a lot of, especially in the sort of 90s and noughties of presenteeism. But actually what you're talking about is in order to be productive and to be able to achieve my master's, to be able to become chartered, to be able to run one of the biggest and most complex construction projects of its time, yes. I actually realised I needed to rest yeah. and do stuff for me. And I love that you know yourself well enough. Have you always been like that? Have you always... Knowing yourself, or has is, is it been a gradual thing to, to learn how to manage yourself? Because it sounds like you're so in tune with yourself. I think it's been gradual, right? but I was maybe always more in touch with those things than, than maybe some of my peers. Some of that will be my background. I was a carer for a parent from a young age, yeah. um, and he had a, a mental health issue. So again, I'm a big m- m- sort of advocate for, for yeah. kind of creating that space for people so that I protect their mental health in a work environment. So it was always important to me and I learned through that experience that that you know it's it's an organ like any other organ, exactly what yeah. you've just said. Um, and I think without refueling the brain, and I again in my keynote speeches I quite often used to put up a slide from Ariana 
Huffington, yes. you know, the one where she talks about working herself to burn out to the point where she fainted, hit her head on a table, was completely unconscious. And, you know, we, we can think we're superman or superwomen or super beings, but the reality is we're not. Yeah. Um, and I've, you know, I've had members of my team currently say to me that in giving them permission to take that rest time. They've gone from you know, third gear to fifth gear. And I think it's so important as leaders to, to walk the walk and model that. Yeah. Because so many don't. And if, if that's what you're seeing, you know, if, if, if you can't see it, you can't be it. And that's all you're seeing is this kind of representation of uh, I can only get where I need to go by yes. killing myself invariably what comes with it is a point in time where you can't advance yeah. and you know going going back to a a, a tracking analogy mm. you've got to stop and refuel and and take a deep breath before you know you do that final summit and it's it's so important i think that as leaders we create space for people to be able to do that and also as you said model it yes. because i think indirectly it actually gives people permission because i think that we often i think in this day and age now there's so much out there about well-being <clears throat> i don't think there's anybody who doesn't know it's a good idea to take breaks during the, the day. There's all those MRI scans of a brain where you've taken a 15 minute break where you haven't, you can get that team's fatigue or you feel that you're not quite as sharp or as productive. And I don't think there's many employers now that wouldn't say take a break, but there's a big difference between someone saying it and then someone doing it. And I think if a leader models that, I remember during lockdown, one of the most impactful things that one of my more senior colleagues did was he said, take a break. And then he said, I go for a walk at lunchtime. And I remember him saying that when we were all at home and we were allowed that one hour, and I remember him saying, I am going to go now for my walk. And I remember thinking, oh, it's really okay. I know that, and to be fair, I think everyone had said it's okay. But when you actually saw someone say, this is what I'm going to be doing for the next hour, so if you try and get hold of me, I'll be doing that. To me is, because like you said, it's you actually do it yourself. And I think if you, when you share stories like you've just done about, well, when people ask me about how I did my master's, I did it this way, but I still have breaks. Then they, I could imagine that they would genuinely go, oh well, no, they find she really a way to, to slot it in. And, yeah. and interestingly, I've had people meet me for the first time and kind of go, it, is this genuine? Yeah. You know, because we, we have so many targets as big businesses now, you know, we've all got those targets out in the marketplace for, for gender diversity, for ethnic yeah. diversity, for health and well-being. That's one thing. Creating, you know, plug and sockets mm -hmm. so that the environment then enables that to happen is a different thing. And that's what leadership is. So when I start with a new team, we all talk about, you know, going back to the red line. So mm -hmm. I've had people say to me, well, I've got three kids under five. Mm -hmm. So my first question is, you know, how do you work that as a family? So, you know, more often now we've, we've got to be aware of socioeconomic changes. Mm -hmm. The fact that quite often both parents are working. Yeah. So... Okay, how do you manage that then if you're both working? Well, I do pick up and drop off on a Monday and a Wednesday, and they do pick up and drop off on a Tuesday and a Thursday. Yeah. So we put that in the diary, yeah. and that's a red line. So there are no meetings at those times, and there's permission. Yeah. 
Yeah. And then, you know, they know I'm covering them and they don't have to worry about it. And I will never put in a meeting over that time to yeah. increase pressure. Um, and what comes back then is when, you know, I have something on. I had a close friend pass away recently. Um, and my whole team just said to me, Kerry, we've got you. You know, yeah. do, do for yourself what you do for us. And that's, mm. that's what it's about, I think. And it, it, it's all different things. It's an aged parent. It's a beloved pet. Mm. It's a pub quiz with your partner on a Thursday but you night. you love it, so you have to do it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's those things. If people don't feel like they're making those sacrifices, the, the rewards then in terms of the, the time they're there and they're present, they're rested. And it, and it does enable people, I believe, to, to go up a gear, you know, create space. And without space, you can't grow. You know, if your head is like a boiled egg the whole time, you're, you're never going to, to grow and develop. And, and my role, I feel, is, is to, to kind of bring, bring people up to and beyond my level, ultimately. So, and, and I love it, you know, when you, when you see people that you've worked with for, you know, 10 years or, or six months, suddenly, you know, that, that moment where you see them start to thrive and, and they say, I'm ready for something more, you know, you've done your job. It's, you know, it's so interesting because as I'm, it's such a joy to be able to do these interviews and to spend time, I'm, I'm, I think I'm professionally nosy because it's my job to help people with their careers. And so I'm always fascinated by successful people. And it's interesting because I think there was this sort of archetypal sort of 1980s, 1990s leader that was very, you know, very sort of alpha and, and, you know, sometimes could be perceived as quite selfish and about themselves and, you know, and. And what's been so joyful for me is, is this common thread is actually that the leaders that I'm interviewing now as part of this series are actually the opposite. They're so thoughtful about playing it forward, you know, about, you know, there's someone that I want to be mentoring or that they are being reverse mentored. And, and that, that is something that they and, and they're so generous uh, but but receive back and feel like they're getting so much back from 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 leading so in that much, way. So much, and I think performance just goes up a level. Um, what's interesting, though, I don't feel like we've got the mechanisms yet to measure that. Yeah. Yes. So totally you know, we measure top line, we measure yeah. bottom line, we measure you know how many women versus yeah. how many men. But what we don't or can't quite measure yet is you know growth. Yes, personal growth. Personal growth, outputs, you know, going back to that 1980s yeah. mentality and presenteeism, that's yeah. very different to output. Yes. So again, I, I, you know, and it, it's different. When you're in client environments, you have to be cognizant of client cultures. Yes. Um, but there are still ways within those client cultures to make sure that teams feel safe, they feel listened to. Um, you know, one, one of the, the things we train on in Bechtel is, is filters and, and understanding, you know, it's, it's at the heart of diversity. Yes. We've all come from, um, you know, different backgrounds and Roz, who you met yes. recently, she, she recently did a talk on intersectionality. Yeah. And what was fascinating there was, you know, on the face of it, we, we looked quite diverse. Yeah. You know, there, there was me, a, a sort of, you know, 45 plus woman, we had Roz, um, and, and her kind of Kurdish background. But then when we dug underneath, we all had similar 
you know, backgrounds. We, we all fa felt we were working class. We all felt, you know, most of us had grown up from, from quite an early age without a father. Yeah. Um, and, and I think we don't dig into those things enough to find commonality because the more commonality you find, the more, you know, you have a community in your team. Um, and I know there is not a single member of my team who would feel worried about saying to me, my mental health isn't great today. Yeah. Um, actually, I'm just having a bad day. Yeah. My, my three-year-old's sick this morning. Yeah. And, and they wouldn't have to explain it to me. Yeah. Um, but, but some of that is maybe because I'm a, you know, a 40, nearly 49-year-old mother of a three-and-a-half-year-old. So yeah. there's that cross-generational you know, understanding. Um, and, and interestingly, something we're rolling out now at, at Bechtel is, is D&I um, case studies. Yeah. So whereas lots of company do that, companies do that with ethics, our head of D&I, um, Marwa, has recently um, instigated a series of D&I case studies, mm. um, you know, designed to really get people into the, the kind of bones of what that's about, so mm. that if, if someone hasn't specifically experienced it, um, it helps them to yeah. kind of see it through another lens. Absolutely. There's the, um, I mean, you saw it when we were together. I think I showed it to you. If not, I'll send it to you. But there's um, the, the wheel of power and yes. understanding how much power that you have and understanding that we don't all start at the same level. And as soon as you try and get under the skin of DNI, understanding that actually acknowledging the power you have and but also acknowledging the power you don't have or how you can then play that power forward to empower people who might not have the power that you have you can't change the background that you have the the sexuality you have you know nor should you want to but it's also understanding if you have more power how can you help others who have less power than you to to go on their journey and i think that for me empathetic and kind leadership I don't think we talk enough about I it. Agree. I know, I want to sort of sing it from the root. And, and the value, and it's, yes. it's hard to put dollar signs it next is, yes. to it. Um, and there's a massive bit around authenticity. Yeah. You know, you have to be your authentic self. Yeah. Um, and it always makes me chuckle because when I was first starting out, you know, I possibly look a bit younger than I am, certainly then I did and I was leading this 200 million contract. Um, and I, I always tell the story of, of when some of our contractors obviously thought I was the PA or the admin and divulged their entire commercial strategy in front of me, thinking, you know, we, yes. won't, we won't tell the, yes. you know, the older gentleman in front because they're yes. probably in charge. Yes. And, and then we got, got kind of back to the boardroom. And, you know, I, I deliberately don't kind of go, do you know who I am? Mm. And I have never done that because I always feel there's more power in, you know, sitting there quietly and then delivering something, yeah. you know, when there is that moment. Um, and, and through having that experience myself, I think it, it helps me with, with other women coming up through the, the, the construction environment to understand it, it can sometimes feel like you've got to, you know, pound your fists to get listened yes. to or heard and and I think there's sometimes more gravitas in just waiting for the silence because it will come and it can be really frustrating 
Um, and, and, and I used to say, you know, and then at some point you'll say something that lands with such gravitas, you'll never be underestimated again. Um, but it's fascinating. I, I was on a, a site visit to one of our big nuclear jobs recently, and, and the project director of that, he's, he's this extraordinary man, an incredible advocate, you know, in every way. But he was talking about how he still feels imposter syndrome. Um, you know, we went around the table and kind of said, what are you most afraid of? And, and he surprised us by saying, you know, this, going around the table and having yeah. to kind of kind of speak in, in an environment with, with a bunch of other people that I feel like I'm the imposter in. So I think it's also important to understand this isn't just about what's on the outside. It's very much what's on the inside as well. So I think it's it's really important that we never make assumptions about people that they don't struggle with imposter syndrome. Because I think once you start discussing it and making it safe to say, actually, I have struggled with this, but, I, but I've now recognised, I certainly myself have yeah. recognised that I have imposter syndrome, but at certain points. And when it sort of comes back, I, I now at least I go, oh, right, you're back. You know, and you almost yes. go, let me think why this has happened. Yep. And it's often in a place where I've just been stretched or I'm, I know there's a project that's going to really stretch me. Or there's been massive change. Yes. yes. So for me, the last time I had imposter syndrome, it was, you know, my little one um, was, was super ill through, yes. you know, meningitis. We've talked about it yes. and it's another thing that, that we bonded over. Um, and then we went straight into lockdown with COVID. So, you know, we, we had to be super protective of her. And then when I went back to work, I was still probably reeling from a bit of that and, and didn't have my usual gumption yes. about me and, and certainly felt a huge amount of, of imposter syndrome. Yeah. Um, and, and then you remember in hindsight when you felt that before. Yeah and you questioned yourself and, and then something's happened and you realise, no, I shouldn't have questioned myself. Yeah. So I think, again, as leaders, we can offer that benefit of hindsight. So, it, you know, to, to what you said about paying it forward, that's why it's important to share it. Yeah. Because while, while we all kind of look super confident in what we're doing, it's because, you know, we've trod that path and maybe we've stumbled yeah. and then we've picked ourselves back up again yeah. and, and then walked a few steps forward and realised it wasn't as bad as we thought. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's important to tell people that it's not the end of the world. You know, mistakes are part of learning. Unconscious incompetence is one thing, but if you're consciously incompetent, that's the moment when the magic happens. Yeah. Because once you get through that, um, I often say this point in time is the point at which you will know least. Yes. And everything everyone is talking about from the last six months will seem like magic to mm. you. And you will feel like the least competent person in the room. But in six months' time, you will have gone on that entire journey and you will know exactly where it's come from. Mm. So don't underestimate yourself just because you haven't already walked that journey. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because we now talk about this phrase, psychological safety. And it's quite interesting as I've talked to people throughout their career. So I've you know, spent over 20 years in recruitment. So I've spoke speak to so many thousands of people about their careers. We never called it psychological safety, but actually that 
it was something, like you said, it wasn't measured, it wasn't something that you could put on the balance sheet, but the ability to feel safe and to be able to be, and part of that, I think, is then allowing you to, to be yourself. That I think you have to have yeah. the safety first and then you feel that you can. And then, as you said, then you go into the magic because then you feel safe enough to go, I don't think I'm very good at this. And either someone will say, oh, you are, or they'll say, let me help you become better. Exactly. Or how can I help you to get in that place where you can learn and become better? But it's like you said, we don't, we can't measure it. And even I would suggest that retention isn't even a good example of it. Because some people say, well, if you, if you are an empathetic leader, if you're kind and you have all those things, people stay. Sometimes the best thing is that they don't. Exactly. And actually, when I look back on your story, one of the things that's really struck out to me is that you had a boss that actually went, no, hang on, you need to, you need to move on. You're great at this. You, I think you could do more. They weren't selfish. They were empathetic and kind. So, so in itself, even retention isn't the right one. So you're right. I think we need to come up with a a kindnessometer. We need to sort of <laughs> the empathetic meter. But it's it's a safe environment to fail. Yes. Um, and and we need to be clear that 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 failing at something and that, you know again this yeah. was what I had to conquer. Yeah. If if I fail once, I was that classic. I need a grade A. Yeah. If I don't get a grade A, then I failed. Yeah. And it's understanding that well, not necessarily. Yeah. And of course now I'm teaching four-day contracts workshops to people who who are coming in you know without that knowledge and I'm the expert after after you know knowing nothing about contracts procurement the construction industry at all so um, I, I often make people laugh by saying you know I'm, I'm the Mary Kondo of contracts I love filing and you know how how inspiring that is and everyone's kind of you know filing and governance is so dull but again, it's about, you know, applying some kind of lens to anything that, that people are doing that says, like the guy at NASA, mm. you're not just sweeping the floor, you're putting a man on the moon. Yeah. And it's, it's that equivalent in, in construction that's, that's so important. And, you know, yeah. you, you, could, you could be the new person or you can be the leader. Each mm. part of that is so important and you can't function as a leader without the the structure that your team Provides gives you and, and and I think it's really important to always keep telling them that. Yeah. Um, I, I weekly have a meeting and we have a we have a w joke of the week which has to be a, a mum slash dad, dad joke right, like a really bad one, sort of one um, and and then you know we we also have those moments as mm. well so. So when you now when you think you've got your daughter, you obviously a passionate advocate for DNI. You're a mentor. You're a keynote speaker about getting more DNI. And when you now look at your career, you what do you think are the hacks? If you could go right, <laughs> the young person, or yeah. even somebody who's midway through their career, like we both are, what would you say? Right, this is my wisdom. If there was, if there was one, is there one thing, or is there several things that you go? This is what I think's made me the success that I am. I think there's several. I think one is self-belief, you know, the opposite of imposter syndrome. Um, self-belief at the core of it. And understand that everyone around you used to be a kid at school 
yeah. and in their head is still a kid at school. You know, it's the, the work equivalent of seeing everyone in the, their underwear, yes. I guess. Um, have a plan. Have a plan. If you can't come up with a plan, find that trusted mentor sponsor to help you come up with a plan and yes. work out, you know, wh where do I want to go and how do I get there and ask the right questions. Um, I would say be vocal about what you want and what your needs are and be true to yourself. Um, you know, more, more and more in businesses, I think there tend to be two types of people, the type of people who just kind of put their head down and expect to be acknowledged. And yeah. I don't think that happens. No. It doesn't just happen. So there is part of it that, that's also about who you know and building networks yes. that's so, so important. Mm. Um, and understand your industry, you know, get out there, network, speak to people, be inspired. Yeah. I think that's so important too. Wonderful. I have, I always thought when, I always knew when I started talking to you that this would be an amazing episode in the sense of the wisdom that you have, how I don't think when I listen to you that any negativity has come from not being in the construction industry. I think it's been hugely positive to you that you didn't because I think it has actually the two coming together of the art side of you and then that that you've brought to the job that you do within construction. I think that makes you distinct. I think it makes you really different. I think that empathetic leadership that you have and that kindness is what has made you so successful. And I think that anyone listening to this today, I hope will walk away with that view of actually supporting people and putting other people first is a really good way to run a career. But what I've also loved is there's a deep practicality to you. And I've loved that. And I talk about this with people that ask me about their careers all the time. And obviously anyone listening in is, no, but you need a career plan. Yeah. And that is what I've loved is it isn't just, you haven't just come in and go, oh, let's all look, girl. And I just, you know, happen to be the right place at the right time. I've loved the unpacking of, hang on a second. I've got my red lines. I know what I want to do. I've figured out how it can fit into my life. I need to make sure that I rest. But at the same time, I'm absolutely clear about that destination in my career sat-nav is crystal clear. It says this, this is where I'm going and I'm going to get there. But what I love about you is you're doing that while still having so much energy and just to, to cheerlead people from the side going, you can do it. And I think that is so, I don't know, it's reassuring, motivating, inspiring, all of those things to the people to go, actually, you can be these things be hugely successful. You don't have to give that up. You'd have to be become selfish or or you know selfish with your time. You can be this generous person and still be successful. So thank you so much for coming in and talking to us. Thank you for talking to me. And um, and thank you so much for tuning in today. You can hear other podcasts on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your normal podcasts from, or you can watch this video and others on our Hayes YouTube channel. Mm -hmm.